You're listening to a podcast presented by Providencia West Palm Beach, a church that exists for the flourishing of all people located in the city center of West Palm Beach, Florida. Our hope is to love our city, listen to your story, and practice the grace of God. We hope you enjoy this content. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Luke 24, 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Let's try again. Good evening, everyone. All right, that's a little better. My name is Drew. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia, and it is a joy to be with you this evening. Uh, This whole sermon series that we've been going through, which we've called Living Stones, based on a phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2, the whole series started with a paradox. Living stones is the essence of a paradox, an oxymoron, two words that are contrary to one another in meaning or application, at least on the surface. Stones are not alive in any common sense definition of alive, but as our indigenous brothers and sisters have always pointed out with regard to our natural world, there is a deeper meaning beneath the surface. A deeper meaning beneath the surface. And this is one of the many ways that native peoples help us understand faith. Because faith is an openness to a deeper meaning than what's on the surface. Faith opens us to the possibility that God could take on human flesh. That water washed over our heads could mean more than just getting wet. That bread and wine could mean more than physical sustenance. Faith opens us to the possibility that stones can live. And so in our exploration through the Apostles' Creed, we've come to one more paradoxical question. It's a question easily imagined on the lips of our children. Where is Jesus now? I've told this story before, but this is a question I've actually received from my eight-year-old, Owen. It goes a little something like this. All right, Dad, I get that Jesus lived a long time ago, and then he died, and then he rose again. I get that. Really? You get that? Because I'm 34, and I still feel like I'm trying to get that, and you're eight, but okay, let's go with it. But if Jesus is alive now, he says, then where is he? Uh, 
Good question. Jesus is, Jesus is always with us. But Jesus is human. Jesus is a person. He's a precocious eight-year-old. So he must be somewhere if he's human. So where is Jesus now? You'll have to call Dr. Malone. Dr. Malone is Josh Malone, who's a theologian over at PBA. Because here's the thing, even with all the education that I've gone through, all the degrees I've gotten, I have been in many ways inadequately formed theologically. So answers to difficult questions or paradoxical questions, like where is Jesus now, don't come easily to me. I just end up phoning a friend. Where is Jesus now? Well, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus is there. He is there in heaven as he was on earth, fully divine and fully human, fully God and fully man. This is who Jesus is and where Jesus is. He is in the present, even now, at the right hand of God. And there's a fullness to this present reality that is more real than any present moment we experience on earth. Jesus is. And he is there. But his being there does not mean that he is completely gone from here. The ascension does not result in absence. Or rather, the ascension opens up the possibility of Christ's presence and absence coexisting. Jesus is there and he is here. Is anybody's head hurt yet? Paradoxes are at the heart of our faith. Because Jesus is there, the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts and minds and bodies. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples that he will soon leave them. And I can imagine Jesus saw the terror on their faces as soon as he said that. But he says he will not leave them as orphans, but will come to them. The Holy Spirit will come to them. I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and the Father will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept the Spirit because it neither sees the Spirit nor knows the Spirit, but you know the Spirit. For the Spirit lives with you and in you. The Holy Spirit lives with us and in us as Christ's presence because he is there, because he ascended. Because Jesus is there, the fullness of his presence fills all of creation. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that Christ has ascended higher than all the heavens 
in order to fill the whole universe. A lot of what Keith and I have been drawing on over the last few weeks comes from this short little book on the Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. In this book, Myers points to a painting by an Australian Aboriginal artist named Shirley Purdy. She has an interpretation of this idea of Christ filling the whole world, and it's beautiful. In her painting of Jesus' ascent, it's called Jesus' Ascent, Jesus doesn't go up. Instead, the earth opens up and Jesus ascends down into the red clay so that he might fill the whole earth, all of creation. And if his presence fills all of creation, this is why we can say, I've heard Danny say it before, that he is closer to us than our very breath. Because he fills all of creation. Even when we resist him, even when we reject him, even when we misunderstand him, he is nearer than we know. And he is near because he is there. And he isn't just near to us here, but he has also brought us there. Because Jesus is there, humanity has been brought near to God. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, fully human and fully divine. And so humanity, our beautiful and broken flesh, has been brought near to God, has been restored The Apostle Paul tells us over and over again in his letters, we are united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his nearness to the Father. In Hebrews, Jesus is near to the Father as a great high priest, as an advocate on our behalf. Because he is there, we can be there. Somehow, mysteriously, we are brought near to the Father. Jesus is there, and he is near to us, and he is near to the Father. He is there and here. And just in case we think we might start to grasp this paradox, the creed throws another wrench in our understanding. Just a few moments ago, we affirmed that we believe that from there, from his place seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I appreciate Rachel's vulnerability in introducing the creed for us during our confession. And I have to confess myself that there are several words in the creed that I get hung up on. Even in the relatively updated English version that we recite together, there are a few words that I get hung up on every time. 
One of them is the word his, as it applies to God. Like when we say Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. God isn't a him. God transcends gender. That's another sermon for another time. But I get hung up on the word his. I also get hung up on the word conceived. I get hung up on the word hell every time, as Rachel mentioned. And then there's this word judge. In 2022, in a pluralistic society like the U.S., there are few adjectives less admirable than judgy or judgmental. We'll do anything not to come across as judgy. We do not appreciate anyone who would assert themselves as judge over our lives or anyone else's. But maybe turning to the New Testament language and imagery of judging can help us see this from another angle. The word for judge in the New Testament has the basic meaning of to divide or to separate. So when Jesus teaches through parables about the last judgment, it's with images such as separating the wheat from the weeds or separating the sheep from the goats. But even here we get uneasy, at least I get uneasy. How am I supposed to know if I'm a wheat or a sheep? The weeds get burned up, and the goats, well, go look at Matthew 25 to find out what happens to the goats. But friends, when I look around at the world... When I look into history, even the history of the church, or when I look into myself, I find that I want this kind of judgment, that I long for this kind of judgment, that I need this kind of judgment. We need a Jesus who is there and here and is coming to judge. Most of you will have seen the news last week of another mass shooting. There have been more this week even, but last week it was in Raleigh, North Carolina. One of the victims of that shooting was a member of my brother's church in Raleigh, where he's a pastor. And so when I think of that widower in my brother's church and his sons. When I think of the hours I spent on the phone with my brother trying to be a brother to him, but also a fellow preacher, as he prepared to speak to his congregation in the event of the funeral, which happened yesterday, I find myself thinking we need a judge who will separate out the violence and idolatry of our gun culture and proclaim that it belongs to death, and to death it shall go. Because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of life. When I think about the lynchings of black men and women in the history of the U.S., even one that happened right here in Palm Beach County, 
When I think of the massacre of six million Jews at the hands of the Nazis in World War II, when I think of genocides in Cambodia or Rwanda in the 20th century, when I think of the devastation wrought on our natural world by our greedy and broken industries, or when I think of the root of violence that grows in me, and threatens to rear its ugly head every time I'm angry with my kids. I think we need a judge. A judge who will separate out that hatred and racism and supremacy and greed and rage and burn them up. For Jesus' kingdom is one of life. The shadows in our own hearts and minds that manifest themselves as a false self, as a mask that we put on. Masks we hide behind to protect ourselves from the world or to protect the world from us. We wear these masks, these false selves, for so long it's impossible for us to separate out our true self from our false self. But thanks be to God, there is one coming to judge. One who will separate out our self-deceptions and burn them up so that our true selves, our true selves that are held in Christ might remain. See, judgment need not be comfortless. Yes, it is painful, but it need not be comfortless. It's painful to have the greed and lust and violence and autonomy that we so desperately cling to burned up. It's painful. But what is left is what is united with Christ, crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, and soon to be ascended with him in glory. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly to judge and comfort. So we find that even these difficult parts of the creed, every part of the narrative arc of Jesus' incarnation is a comfort to us. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Though he was not like us, he became one of us. Though he was fully divine, sent from the Father, he was born helpless and dependent, just as we are. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because a human life without suffering would not be a human life. He was crucified, died, and was buried. For us and for our salvation, he endured the cross, that emblem of suffering and pain. He descended into hell, that he might lead captives to liberation, that he might hold forever the keys of death and hell. 
he rose again, triumphant and victorious over death itself. He ascended and is seated, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. He is there and he is here. He is here and he is coming. So what do we do? In the midst of our confusion, in our inability to hold these kinds of paradoxes, we worship. Because worship doesn't require a prior understanding. Worship doesn't require prior objectivity. In fact, worship is by its very nature subjective. It's relational. It's relative to the subject being worshipped. Worship is our only proper response to the overwhelming tension of the paradoxes of our faith. When at the end of the passage from Luke 24 that Margaret read earlier, will you put that back up, Noah, Luke 24? When at the end of this passage the disciples worship Jesus, It's the first time that this word and action is applied to Jesus. See, these are good Jewish men and women. They are good monotheists. They worship only one God, and that God is Yahweh. So for them to worship Jesus is to proclaim that he is, in fact, as he told them, one with the Father, one with Yahweh. And then the Spirit that He promises would come and clothe them with power from on high. That Spirit would come from the Father and from the Son. And so also be one with the Father and the Son. These good Jewish men and women couldn't have understood or explained that any better than I can. So they worship. I can't pretend to be able to explain to you the paradox of the ascension, the paradoxes of the Trinity, God three in one. At the end of the day, the end of all our questioning and searching, we fall back on belief. But in a world that resists certainty, in a world that at all times seems unstable, in a world where empirical, experiential knowledge is incomplete, and in a reality where there is a resurrected Christ, belief is better than explanations. Belief Faith opens us up to paradoxes. Faith can hold a paradox. So we believe Jesus is there and here. He is here and he's coming. And so in faith, we call these paradoxes by another name, mysteries. 
We call them mysteries. We call them mysteries because in their complexities, in their seeming contradictions, in our incomplete understanding, there is truth and beauty and life. This is why we worship. This is who we worship. The one who was and is and is to come. So when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him. Let us pray. Thanks for joining us for this episode. The work we do is made possible by your partnership and generosity. If you enjoyed the content and would like to support our work, please visit providenciawpb.org and click on the Give link. The music you hear in the beginning and end of our show was written, produced, and recorded by our music collective, Paradise Hymns. Find their original songs wherever you stream music. Thanks again, and have a blessed day.